Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Heart Gallery podcast with me, Rebecca Rivola-Lecremer. I am an artist, creative advisor, and visual communicator. I've worked primarily with climate and humanitarian organizations for the last decade, and I also have a personal art practice where I explore relationships between individuals, other living beings, and our planet. I created this podcast to inquire into the various roles that art can play in helping us create deeper connections with our surroundings and others. Listen to the podcast to hear from other artists engaging in these interrelationships with all kinds of approaches, philosophies, and hopes for the future of humanity and our earth, and to learn about different ways that art can help create change. This episode is exciting. I think all of them have been exciting so far, but this is the first in-person episode that I recorded, and not only that, but it is part one of a two-part Miami Climate Change series. I was so lucky to get to be in Miami in person, and even more lucky to connect with two incredible artists who agreed to be on the podcast. Both of them have just fascinating stories great approaches that I'm so looking forward to you learning more about. And this week, the episode is with Morel Doucette. Morel is a Miami-based multidisciplinary artist and art educator, originally from Haiti. He creates these most captivating ceramic illustration and print works that examine the realities of climate gentrification, migration, and displacement within Black diaspora communities. Morel's work offers narratives that address the contemporary reconfiguration of the Black experience. His compelling imagery captures environmental decay at the intersection of economic inequity, the commodification of industry, personal labor, and race. He has been nominated for an Emmy. His work has been featured and reviewed in numerous publications, including Vogue Mexico, Oxford University Press, and PBS. His artworks are in the collections of the Perez Art Museum in Miami, the Tweed Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art North Miami, the Plymouth Box Museum, the Petrucci Family Foundation Collection of African American Art, Microsoft, and Facebook. As an arts educator, he is interested in working with young audiences to instigate curiosity, sensory perception, and visual literacy. In this episode, we talk about how he brings his art approaches to Miami's climate issues, specifically to climate gentrification, and we discuss how to engage ethically with corporate entities. We also talk about Haitian history. We talk about the history of ceramics. I mean, Morel's background as an educator and an arts educator like really shines here. And just listening back to the episode, I was just um, amazed at just the amount of information and wisdom that he shares. I am so grateful to have gotten to meet Morel in person for this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Morel. Hello. Welcome to the Heart Gallery podcast. It's so nice to, to be here with you in your incredible studio. It's so beautiful. Um, I'm surrounded by so much color and texture. And I'm actually right now looking around for um, emerald green and frost. Frost green. <laughs> frost green. And I'm seeing some greens um, before we started recording uh, during our test, our sound check. Morel was telling me that his um, favorite color is green, specifically emerald and frost. But yeah, maybe uh, when we do the walkthrough of your work later, you can you can share some of those greens with me. But to get started, I read a number of your interviews. You speak so beautifully and eloquently. Also heard you speak in videos. And it's just such a joy to hear you speak. So I, I feel like our audience is in for such a treat. And I wanted to start at the start, one of the starts anyway, uh, when your family, when you and your family emigrated, I guess, if, is that the word? Um, from Haiti yes. to the United States. Um, Not to Miami right away, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so I want to say to the listeners, it's an honor to be here on this podcast um, and hopefully tune in and, and listen to some gems as we're having this conversation. So as mentioned, you know, I am a first-generation immigrant, um, Haitian-American. I was born in, in Haiti, 
and grew up around a time of political upheaval. While in Haiti, my father was a anesthesiologist. He worked in one of the local hospitals in the town that I grew up in. And my mother was an educator. Um, my mother would teach mathematics and would travel from different regions in the northern department of Haiti to teach math. And so sometimes she would walk two hours to a site. Sometimes it would be a drive. And so my mother migrated a lot. And my father was working in the hospital as a doctor. And then my father was in prison, you know, under the reign of the Haitian president. Um, I believe it was under Baby Doc. Uh, my father was in prison. And the entire experience for my mom was very traumatic. In Haiti, when you're arrested, you know, there's no system that are caring for prisoners. So if you're arrested, your family has to provide care for you. So that goes from bringing food, breakfast, lunch. And when you bring it in, sometimes you're not even guaranteed to receive the food. If the guard did not eat that morning, the guard would sometimes eat the food that you brought for the person that's in prison. And so after this very tumultuous time um, in prison, the U.S. eventually intervened in the political affairs of Haiti. And my parents were given the option of getting political asylum. And so within a very short amount of time, um, they had to pack everything that they own, um, really like bags and clothes, you know? And they were transported from Haiti and dropped in Mobile, Alabama. At around this time, I would say I was around age three when this transition was happening. And so I remember even at that age, the travel, what that voyage entail. So we had to ride on the back of a truck that was carrying loads and loads of charcoal and, and bags. And we just kind of like plopped on this charcoal. And then at a certain point, you know, the roads in Haiti are not the best. And so we had to maneuver through rivers and streams in order to finally make it to this airport. Um, when we landed, you know, it was a, a complete culture shock. I because my parents were were working were working the majority of the time. I grew up calling my grandfather dad, and so my mom I would call her by her first name because I was knew her. Just this lady that came around. Oh no! Same thing for my dad. So hard for her. And so my mom, you know, in the airport, I was I was I would I would refuse to call her mom. I would be, I was like my dad was my grandfather. And so my mom, you know, in the early days for her, it was very hard. Yeah. Um, because I, I would cry. Every time I would see a plane fly above, I would just like, I want the plane to come pick me up right now and take me back. My parents, you know, after living in Mobile, Alabama for six months, you know, the extent of it was very much hard for them. And eventually they ended up moving down to South Florida. And they've been living in Miami for over 20 years. You can imagine moving to Miami in the early 90s. It was around this huge Mecca in my in migration of many immigrants. So not only Haitians, but Cubans, people from like St. Martin, the from South America. So Miami became this conglomerate of different immigrants from different walks of life, congregating and trying to find a new opportunity um, at the American dream. And so being the eldest of two other brothers. Um, and it being also a child, being first generation, a lot of my childhood was spent trying to navigate the day-to-day as my parents were. You know, I had to, with my very broken English, I had to help my parents understand very important documents, sometimes translate, um, sometimes they were given incorrect information. And so those are things um, that I would say later on in life affects the way I do certain things and how I, I advocate for people. One of my experiences growing up was trying to figure out what is community maybe? Of course, I wasn't articulating this kind of question when I was little. But like, I think like looking back, I see like some of the internal mental struggle I had was like, okay, what is community? How do I fit? Where do I fit? Canada right now is grappling with its colonial past and present. 
Um, now I'm living in the United States. We can talk all about the different kinds of issues, social issues here in the U.S., but I also saw myself as somebody coming into a place that was not my own, which also factored into like my my grappling with like with this sense of belonging and what is community, et cetera. I'm wondering how you navigated through that because just jumping ahead to to the art that you've been creating that I've seen um, a lot of, I guess over the last like five, 10 years, really incredible work. And a lot of it, from my perspective, seems rooted in community. So I wonder if you could share about your experience, maybe grappling with some of those questions or maybe different ones and um, what your conception or how your how your own conception of community developed. Um, absolutely. So I would say growing up in South Florida, it was not very popular to be Haitian. Being Haitian carried a stigma. There was a false narrative, you know, like, like AIDS, like AIDS started in Haiti, which was never true. Um, so that was like one of the false n- narratives that was kind of being passed around. Um, Haitians were called boat people because at the time in the 90s, a lot of Haitians were in, were, were immigrating through coming here through boats. In an incredibly treacherous, dangerous way, right? Like, I yeah. mean, so many were just perishing yeah. on that route. On that, on that route. And so Haitians were reduced to that, either Haitians... So, so in elementary school, middle school, if you're Haitian, you're either, oh, Haitian has AIDS, or Haitians are boat people. That's how we were reduced. And the idea of representation did not start to emerge into the mid-2000s. And a lot of it was through entertainment media. So seeing people like Clef John, um, seeing representation on TV seeing that, oh, there are people that are Haitian, that are accelerating, that are doing well, that are contributing to American society, um, that narrative started to change a lot. Growing up, I would try to hide my accent. And so I got really, really good at code switching. I don't know if you're familiar with... with Maybe you want to, if you're you're okay, maybe you can share. So code switching is the active process of disguising either your voice or the diction or the manner of of how you are speaking. And so I got really good at code switching where I could sound really, really white um, over the phone. And I found that by sounding a very particular way, it allowed me to get my foot into certain doors, into certain rooms. And then when I got there, people realized the voice kind of took him took him back. I stopped doing that um, around the time when I was back in college. And now I don't do it at all. I just show up as the authentic version of myself, but as a method of survival and trying to assimilate into American culture and through media, it felt that was the right thing to do at at that time, was to code switch, trying to blend in. Um, Even in college, I remember this very distinct moment. I was riding from BWI, um, the the, um, airport, and I was on the train heading over to the college campus, and it was me and my good friend, um, Catherine Odonez. We were sitting on the train talking, and a Black lady who grew up in Baltimore, just, you know, she was just captivated by what we were talking about, but she was very um, in tune in my diction. And she and she kind of like, she, 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 she goes, you know, um, excuse me, guys, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you guys. But I just want to say, um, you have a beautiful, I like the way you sound. It's very eloquent. And she, she goes, I have a grandson who's who's in California, who, who lives in California, and he comes to visit me during the summertime, and he always gets make, make fun of by his cousins because he doesn't have a certain accent or diction. And I and, and so and and she called it you and the way she phrased it is you have that good English. And so, but but again, like it didn't take me by surprise because I knew I was it was in my manner to practice diction and grammar and enunciation. So I was very particular at that time about how I was speaking and how I wanted to present myself. Because um, a lot of it, again, like I said, I wanted to hide the Haitian part of me, hiding that identity. I just wanted to assimilate into this being, either being perceived as American or just being perceived as Black. Um, I did not want to be Haitian. And funny thing, so my, my, my group of friends knew I was Haitian, but most people just assumed I was just either Black. And so you you mentioned that you started to move away from this code switching behavior when you were in college. 
what was the impetus for that for you? So what happened was um, two things. My minor is creative writing. Um, so throughout my coming to terms with my thesis for creative writing, um, I did I developed a chapbook of 100 and... It was about 125 poems that I wrote for my thesis for creative writing. And in the beginning of this book I was writing of poems, I struggled a lot because I did feel... I was trying to find a voice to write in. So, you know, I was looking at different diction, you know, like um, grammar, Southern accents, and none of it was really sticking to me. And when I started to kind of like re-read these poems, but reading it in Haitian Creole in my head, I realized that there was a beauty in the language. You know, Haitian Creole, at the core of it, comprises of seven various languages that makes Haitian Creole. So we're looking at Portuguese, there's French, there's the Taino, kind of mixed into the language. And I just started to just look into Haitian history. And I realized that, you know, within my, within growing up, I was, I did not know Haitian history. I did not know my history. And there was a reason why, you know, Haitian history was not taught in school and more, more specifically in the U.S. And so when I started to look at that research, I realized that, oh, Haitian history is studied and celebrated in Africa, is studied in South America. Haitian have had a global impact and none of this has ever been taught to me. Um, so in a sense, when here in the U.S., they talk about the Louisiana Purchase. The French had territory. They sold the territory. But it was never mentioned that they sold the territory in order to finance the war to go against the Haitian people. Um, and so Haiti altered the course of American history by forcing France to sell its territory in order to finance the war. And they, the French eventually lost that war as well. Um, and so that was one of the global impacts that Haiti had on American history. Um, Chicago was founded by a Haitian person. And when you think about L- L- Louisiana with the, with the Creole, um, and the embargo was, was placed on Haiti. If you look at the flags in South America, the red and the blue, um, those, those colors were inspired by the native seeing the Haitian... So once Haiti got their independence, they not only freed themselves, but the army, the Haitian army started um, fighting freedom for other people because they wanted to liberate everybody that was of color, that was Black. And so Haiti, the Haitian army went through parts of South America and started liberating these other countries. So we think of these flags in South America that have the red and the blue. That's from the Haitian the Haitian flag, they integrated those colors into that. And so through my research, through studying this, I realized that, oh, this narrative of Haiti being the third world country, um, there's more to it. You know, there's a reason why this embargo was placed on Haiti. The Haitian government um, paid the French what is equivalent today um, at $22.3 billion dollars. Um, so if the Haitian government got that money back from French as reparation, um, what would that do for the economy? What would that do for the country? Inconceivable so, how so, much they could do. And so in a sense, Haiti paid the ultimate price for gaining their independence, for helping free other people. And so while these other nations have thrived, um, Haiti has been very much positioned in a way they did not really see the repercussions of that freedom. So when I talk about Haiti now, you know, I go, Haiti is the first Black republic. Um, when I think ideas of, like, the movie Wakanda, like, this second movie for Wakanda, um, there's, a, there's a scene where they go to Haiti and they talk about, they're introducing the new son of Chadwick in the movie, and he's hiding in, in Haiti. So I was very, it was like, a, like, like an homage to this legacy of what Haiti is. Yeah, so kind of so going back to, to your question. I was going to ask if you recommend the movie. Yeah, I haven't oh, yeah, seen I would, the second one. Yeah, I would recommend the movie um, to anybody that is a okay, big you've heard fan here. of Marvel. Um, so to go back to your question, through me doing this internal dive into my history, into what it meant to be Haitian, what is Haitian history, and understanding the global impact of Haitian history, then I told myself that 
I would no longer try to assimilate. I'm going to show up as the authentic version of myself. And that ultimately is why I stopped code switching um, because I told myself that I was enough. My culture is proud. My culture has impacted the globe. And I have an obligation to walk into space as the version of myself. That's so beautiful. And I wonder, is that, um, as you're going through this journey in your college years, was this also when you started to explore themes of Black diaspora within your art? Yes. Um, So I would say um, throughout my time in college, um, I was always fascinated with what Western culture would deem as primitive, savage. Um, When I looked at these cultures... I realized that they're not primitive. They're they're in tune with the environment. They know they they're able to create medicine. They can cure um, hunger, care f- for pregnant women. Like these cultures, because we don't pump medicine and, and vaccines into their system, we say they're primitive, but they're not. They're actually much more in tune with the land and their environment. And I stopped believing that narrative. Oh, these are primitive culture. It's because you don't have a LED light above your head that, that's on at the flip of a switch does not mean you're primitive. It means that you're just, just a different way of life. Um, and so when I studied these, these cultures, I just started seeing the beauty of them um, and how they were just in tune with their environment. And that became this area of discovery and this hybrid method in the work I was doing during college. And then the you just mentioned the the environment piece. and. Um, I am curious where your love of the environment came from because you have this you have this thread of the environment of nature of human nature connection that that I see and that I've heard you talk about. Where did this come from? Was this was this really truly like a part of this college age discovery process, or did you have an earlier uh, interest and connection to the environment that you tapped into? So when you look at my work, the earliest inspiration of the environment, it stems back from my grandfather. Um, my grandfather is a farmer. And so growing up, I was always around him, watching him farm the land, raise 11 kids, and put all of them through school through farming was incredible. But I also value, like, I, I came to have this understanding of our connection to the land. As a farmer, you farm with the seasons. And so if you take something, you want to put something back into the earth. And so watching my grandfather farm, having this intimate exchange between the land and the and the outcome of that um, is kind of one of the earliest references of what land and why I referenced the environment in, in the work. And then more recently, in the work that I make right now as an artist, Here in Miami, there's aggressive gentrification happening across the city. Um, Some developers would buy a property and they would tear down the house in order to just pay a land tax versus paying a property tax. And so when you're looking around, the only thing that are staying behind in in these vacant lots is the plant, the trees, the bush, the flower. And so in a way the only thing that stays behind in certain neighborhoods is the, is, is is that. And so by using the plants in my work, it's essentially using this, it's like this idea of memory, um, it's magical realism. I'm using the essence and the energy of what used to um, exhibit, of what used to live in that particular space. Almost honoring yeah. the the like spirits or the ghosts or the the memory the memories of, yeah. of that space and so when when you look in when you as you're looking in the studio as you see reference to floor and fauna um the floor and fauna is praying respects to that and speaking of gentrification that is rampant here and in, in so many cities and so many places um you also in your work explore climate gentrification which is a concept that's relatively new to me. Um, I'm here with you in Miami. It's my first time here. I've heard you describe Miami as the front lines of climate change um, through my own environmental science and climate change studies. 
that was sort of like the mythology as well of Florida and and the city. And but but climate gentrification is new to me. I I was just reading about it thanks to you. So thanks to you, like you're raising awareness about this this issue um, to others who are who are visiting, coming in. And climate gentrification is the is this idea that people who are wealthy and whose properties, residences, businesses, etc., are being threatened by rising seas here in Miami and elsewhere. Um, they have the luxury to be able to move to higher ground. And what they're doing through that action is they're displacing um, other communities um, who don't necessarily have the ability to pick up and go. So these communities are being disbanded, are being torn apart, apart, rent asunder, and who really knows what is going to be happening. What Can you share more about your exploration in this space and maybe just share more about this issue and how it's manifesting here in the city? Um, absolutely. And that was a absolute dead-on definition of gentrification, uh, of climate gentrification. So thank you for saying that. Um, so I've lived in Miami for over 20 years. The neighborhood that I grew up in is called Little Haiti, which is the mecca of Haitian culture. So many Haitians that came to Miami in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of them started off in Little Haiti, and they have branched off to other parts of the city. And and so Little Haiti has always been majority Haitian people. But in recent years, um, through studies of land elevation, um, Little Haiti is one of the higher nested communities in Miami that's on higher elevation. And so as a result of that, these developers have been canvassing the neighborhood and they've been buying properties in multitude. One developer would come and buy as much as 13 properties in a one-year period. And other ways are other tactics of what they do is they buy, you know, the, the property. And then that eventually forces a little bit of the tax increase. And so if you have somebody who's making $30,000 a year and their property tax goes up, then they can lose their home if they're unable to pay that property tax. So there's multiple tactics of how this development and gentrification is happening. Another way is this money. You know, if you have a home and a developer is like, hey, it's a million dollars. Do you want to buy it? That sounds like a lot of money. So you're going to take that $1 million, which to you, if you've never seen that before, it's a lot of money. But that land is much more valuable than that $1 million. A developer can take that same land and flip it around and make a billion dollars off of that same property that they sold, they brought for a million dollars. And so that's another tactic that's happening. Um, on the main strip near Little Haiti, there's a huge site right now that is supposed to start development. And they're trying to rebrand the neighborhood as Magic City. Um, but we all who grew up here in Little Haiti have known it as Little Haiti. But the developers are trying to come in and re, rename it, rebrand it, and, and provide this new dream of what the neighborhood can look like. The city commissioners, residents have proposed, okay, if you're going to develop this mega structure in our community, how about having affordable housing? The rich does not want to live with the poor. How about mixed housing? They don't want that either. Um, the last issue was they wanted to have a community trust where they would throw a lump sum of money into it and the community would decide how what they do with that money. But they don't want to they, they want to come into the neighborhood, build what they want to build, and not have to really be told what to do or how to do it. And yeah. so that's a, another issue that's happening as well. And I saw that you said that you feel as an artist, an artist who grew up in these spaces over time learning more and more about these issues. Um, facing various communities that you're in contact with, that you feel like it's your responsibility to be raising awareness, shining a light, embellishing with flowers, and um, creating these depictions, these these visual narratives about what you're witnessing. And I'm wondering whether you think where you are today with your sense of responsibility. It seems it seems almost heavy to me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm curious because it, it seems like a lot of weight for a person to have. How do you how do you carry that? Um, so in the early days of my research in the work I was producing, um, it was definitely about raising awareness of this issue that was going on. And the reason why I was so adamant about raising this issue is I would go to these town hall meetings, I would hop on these Zoom calls. And when it came to ideas of representation, they're mostly white or Hispanic people in these meetings. There was no Black, there was no Haitian immigrant. And, you know, after talking to peers, after talking to people in the community, it was not that they didn't care about what was happening. It's because they didn't have the luxury of being in these in these rooms because at the end of the day, they're trying to put food on the table. They're trying to cover rent over their heads. And so if you're if you're in a constant state of survival, then how can you enter a room if you're if you're not even sure if you can even make it into that room? If you if you, if the roof is leaking over your head, if you're not if you can't afford food for for that month, um, so your basic needs are not being met. And so oftentimes these people are left out of the conversation. And so in my early um, part of of the work I was making, bringing awareness was me being an advocate for those that were not necessarily in these spaces. Throughout the last several years, as I've been producing the work, um, the narrative has shifted very slightly, where because the topic is so heavy, I'm looking at ideas of Black joy and leisure of what happens in these neighborhoods. Um, So behind you, if you notice, there's a work that I'm working on for my solo show. And so it's, so beautiful. If, if you're and looking joyful. at it, there's 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 chickens, there's dogs, there's a rooster, there's three, there's two boys and a gentleman that are standing, and the work for me speaks to ideas of Afrofuturism. Um, it thinks of ideas of time and space. Um, the work references land, but it's also very cosmic in the environment, and so is a way of is this idea that Blackness exists in time and in space. Um, it's infinite. And there's joy in these spaces. There's memory, there's community. And so the new work that I'm developing is looking at that idea of ideas of rest, of what, what does rest look like? What does what, what does being be is? Um, like, like, who are these people? Why are, they, why are they in these neighborhoods? So a lot of the work that I'm developing now is referencing that. Oh, it's beautiful. And um, and this Afrofuturism tinged piece behind me is so, um, it's got a whimsy to it. And it makes me think of um, the term you used earlier, magical realism. And I wonder if you can share more about magical realism. And I also want to say that um, I had the honor of spending about a week and a half in Haiti uh, for a work project. At one point, it was a film project with the Haitian Red Cross. And obviously, that's no time at all. Yeah. But in that, in the brief time that I was in Haiti, I, through my uh, colleagues at the Haitian Red Cross, I learned a little bit about the the magic that permeates uh, Haitian culture. This sort of like spiritual tinged, maybe religion tinged, mm-hmm. magical culture. Yeah. I mean, it's it's many yeah. threads, right? Yeah. So it's, there was it's, that. It's yeah. A, the Haitian culture. It's it's a culture of many threads, you know. So there's the deeply religious, you know, either Christian or Protestant. I mean, either Protestant or Catholic. And then there's those that practice the religion of voodoo. But then there's also mysticism that's imbued in the culture. And so when, when certain things happen and there's not a medical explanation, then people would often resort to mysticism. Um, And so as a result of that, um, a lot of stories are very much imbued with these these different qualities. And the work, you know, as looking at them, um, the figures, the being that I'm depicting, um, there's no facial feature. They're just this silhouette that embodies this kind of like this cosmic energy that kind that's kind of coming out of him. And that cosmic energy looks like flora and fauna. So it's this idea that if you look at a leaf, um, there's 
mathematical principles in that leaf. So the same mathematical principles that are happening in nature is also being replicated in the work through the depiction of the flora and the fauna. I, I can totally see that. And I wonder how you stay connected to your Haitian roots, because you were so young, um, like me, when you emigrated. And I have had the privilege of being able to stay in touch with my relatives over time. And have you managed to maintain those cultural ties? Or, I mean, it seems like there's there's such a large Haitian community here in Miami, too, that you're probably plugged into. So, like, how... And I'm, I'm actually curious, like, how the Haitian community that you're exposed to here, like, how you contrast that with, with any Haitian community that you might be connected to back in Haiti as well. Yeah, so one thing that I'm really thankful for is, you know, my parents made it their mission for me to speak Haitian Creole. Um, and so I, I speak Creole very fluently. Um, I can read it phonetically as well. And I'm very close with my mom's side of the family. And so through new technologies like WhatsApp, you know, FaceTime, um, I'm able to connect with families back in Haiti. And then in terms of in terms of the culture here in Miami, um, I feel like it's still relatively close to how Haitian would typically go about their day-to-day here back in Haiti. And because there's resources in the city, um, if you're a new immigrant, if you if you're a new Haitian coming to Miami, then certain things are a little bit more accessible than if you came here in the early 80s or in the 90s. So, yeah. I'm just just to go back to, for a second to this this idea of rest and and how you were speaking about that in response to my question about just like the heaviness of of having to raise awareness about issues that are so pressing and considering this label that Miami has and Florida in general has of being like the front lines of climate change or like the ground zero of climate change in the United States, like where sea level rise is, you know, sea levels are rising here and storms and rainy seasons are becoming more intense. And do you sometimes question like the value of art? Like when you are in the middle, almost literally, or sometimes literally of the storm? That's a really um, beautiful question. So I came to that answer because I've, I've, you know, you know, as, as artists, you know, art can be very ephemeral, and so for me, I came to that answer through my exploration of ceramic. Actually, ceramic as a medium is the only is the only artistic medium that intersects history, economics, and time. Um, when a archaeologist goes onto an old dig site and they dig up the shards that are left behind, we can understand the dietary needs of that culture. We can understand the medicine that they took. Um, we can look at, um, if there's designs on that ceramic piece, we can piece it together and see a story. Um, and so ceramic intersects history, you know, and then in terms of economics, um, with porcelain ceramic, is one of the only materials that had the same monetary value as gold at one point in our human history. And so as a symbol of status, as a symbol of prestige, if you went to somebody's house and one way of them showing that they were sophisticated or refined, they would have a piece of porcelain somewhere in the mantle or in the entryway of their home, seeing that, oh, I'm sophisticated, I'm super cultured by having porcelain there. Um, and then going back to the idea of magical realism, ceramic has been here since the formation of the universe. So that, that cosmic particle is in the clay, it's in the soil. And so by using this material in my work, I'm using time, I'm using space. And then once the work is created, it goes under this transformation from this raw material into this, into a final um, state. And, the, and then that final piece can live over a thousand years. So when I'm no longer here, the work that I produce in ceramic will still be here. It can survive a house fire. Um, and so, so going back to your question, um, I realized that as an artist, you know, the work that we make become a signifier of the time that we're living in. And so when I'm no longer here, the work that I'm making will hopefully be here to tell the next generation of what we 
encountered, of what we've learned, and hopefully of what they can use to change and inform their future. Moral, that's, I love, I mean, this is very lovely. You make me also think that your work for you might be a form of like self-care. And of course, like self-care as a concept is like, it's become kind of silly in our society. But I'm thinking more about like spiritual care, Mm. like about about safeguarding like your internal landscape um, so you can be showing up for, for the communities that you're you're connecting with and you're creating these works for and for family and, and so forth. And, and I wonder if you can speak to whether or not your work f- performs that function for you and, and how else, and this is like maybe something that could be useful for anyone who's listening and who's working in any aspect of, of the climate crisis or is an artist and how, and when I say artist, I mean, I think like, thinking about myself and other people I've interviewed and other people I know and thinking about it, what I've heard from you. Like there's like one thread that, that connects a lot of these, these people within this artistic space is like this deep sensitivity, mm-hmm. which I think can like make that, that care, that spiritual care, that self-care, whatever we call it, like all the more essential, but also can make it harder to, to get there. It's harder to prioritize. So roundabout way of asking you, like, what do you do to take care? Yeah. So right now, I'm actually on that journey right now. You know, I've been working as a museum educator for over 10 years, and I've been doing a work as an artist. And so my time have either been spent teaching, and then the and then my time of rest has been producing work as an outlet as an artist. Um, and so now that I'm working full-time as an artist for myself, um, this new season that I'm entering, um, I'm discovering of what that looks like for me and how I can implement it into my day-to-day practice. Um, and so now, you know, so that means either waking up a little bit later in the morning, um, taking time to eat a good breakfast, you know, exercising for 30 minutes, reading. I'm reading, you know, I'm a huge advocate of reading. Because, what are you reading? Huh? So I'm out. I'm reading about like Mexican pottery, where so so not Mexican Mexican pottery, but really I'm 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 studying like ideas of gods, the Aztec, and the Incas, and I'm seeing because because right now you know with the ceramic work, I've been looking at um, West Africa, so these features are from the San people who archaeologists believe are the oldest human on this planet. So if you look them up, they're they're spelled S-A-N. I think it's I think it's S-A-A-N, the San people. And so if you look at them, they have their their brown skin and they have these Asian features. So when people see my ceramic work that I've been working on for the past year, people say, oh they look Asian. I go, they look Asian, but they're derivative of this African tribe. Um, and so so I've been studying a lot of African culture with the carving of the ifa on the faces. So after studying African culture for so long, I'm now looking at Mexican culture and seeing what are the aesthetics and different symbolism that they're using. And hopefully that can influence some work I'm going to be making in the future. Okay, beautiful. So self-care, you're reading. Reading. And, and do you feel like community is a part of self-care? Yes, community is is definitely part of that for me as well. In the last several years, you know, I've become, I guess, an advocate for other artists. You know, I've been very fortunate to have opportunities early on in my career as an artist. And I'm using my experiences to hopefully help other artists that are on that journey as me. So rather that looks like helping them work on a contract, um, what are predatory practices to avoid from galleries, from institutions? Um, I'm using the things that I've learned along the way to kind of pass on the knowledge to other people. That's fantastic. And I saw that you also are, that you're collecting, that you're starting to collect art from from other artists who are younger, who are maybe coming from lesser known communities and spaces and working on different types of issues that are maybe less mainstream or maybe not so New York based. 
and that you're you're sharing your collection publicly as a way to not only share the the work of these artists but also to like shine a light on on some of these predatory practices that mm-hmm. other collectors um, sometimes conduct. And I wonder if you could share more about like collecting and predatory art practices and how people who want to support um, mm-hmm. young artists. Um, especially those that are working on climate and social change issues. Yeah. I'm just joking. But uh, but if, if you could just illuminate some of that. Absolutely. So, um, so as I mentioned, you know, I've been slowly collecting art as a new collector. And, you know, collecting art is a commitment, you know, because when you think about, you know, artists put time, energy into creating something. And so when you purchase a piece of work, is this energy exchange. It's not just a monetary exchange or transaction. It's an energy exchange. And if you agreeing in this licensing that you're going to live with this work in your home, so you're essentially taking a little bit of that artist's essence with you um, to have inside of the home. Um, and so I've been very intentional in who I've been collecting. And so I look at artists that are young and emerging, and by me collecting a small piece from this artist is me giving them validation, me giving them their flowers, that I think you're onto something really compelling. And if this small acquisition can motivate you to continue making the work that you're making, then let that be. You know, and then as far as this advocating and, and helping artists um, from predatory practices... Um, I think it's an industry problem. You know, I have peers that are in really terrible gallery contract um, that are hurting them. Um, I have peers that are unsure of how to go about gallery representation. Um, I have peers that are going through these legal issues with corporations or companies and I realized that one thing that art school does not teach you is how is is how to be a successful business person. Art school shows you talent, they show you skill, um, they show you that. But my crash course of how to do my taxes was a one a one day class before graduation when I was in college. Oh gosh. Um, and they're just like, yeah, by the way, you got to do this something called tax. And you should do this once a year. And that was like the extent of, of what that was. That's awful. Um, it, it was, I, I struggle so much with taxes. It, 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 and it's just bad. so sad. No one, yeah. Um, and so for me, you know, as, as somebody um, who's been really blessed to work with a variety of different brands, from Facebook to Ciroc, um, to name a few, I'm learning as I go. And, and so if I can take a knowledge, or if I can take a experience, I'm like, listen, this is this was a really great opportunity, and moving forward, these are some things you should base or advocate for for your contract. Or did you really look at this contract before you agreed to it? Because there's some really problematic things in this contract that should be revisited or revised. Contracts are not black and white; they're negotiable, and these are things you should look for. And so, and so. I, uh, and so as, you know, an artist who's transitioning from emerging to like this mid-career stage in, in, in my life right now, I'm realizing that it's going to keep happening. And if more artists become vocal about it, hopefully we can have a change in the industry. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So That's fantastic. A little bit of that. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're out there also as an art educator. And just to go back to one thing. Not to like be too, I don't know, <laughs> not to not to like put you on the spot with this one, but you mentioned that um, you've collaborated with Facebook and I think a couple other like bigger corporations. And how do you square that for yourself? Do you feel like there's any contradiction there given your values or not? Because it's a chance for you to bring your ideas and your perspectives and the perspectives of others who are not not very often heard in those types of places yeah. to those places? Um, that's an excellent question. So I so one thing people always ask me is, you know, so from the outside looking in, like how do you find these brand collaborations? And I tell people, um, 
the honest truth is, I've just been dedicated to building a story that was authentic to myself. Um, so the work that you see online, the work that you see in the studio is an authentic reflection of what I truly value. And as a result of that, um, opportunities have just come my way through the stories that I'm telling. So when brands like Facebook reached out, for, me, for example, uh, Facebook reached out to me four years ago um, for an opportunity to collaborate with them. And the the budget wasn't right for the project and what they're looking for. And so even though it would have been a great opportunity, I had to turn it down because financially, um, for what they wanted, um, they didn't have the budget to execute the project. And so I was just like, you know, it was a great opportunity. It didn't make it did not make sense. And so I had to walk away from it. Um, and then unbeknownst to me, four years later, um, they had a change of management at Facebook. And this new person reached out to me, thinking, oh, this is a new this is an artist who I love who's in Miami. And I was just like, did you know you guys reached out to me four years ago for a similar idea, but it didn't work out because of funding. And so with this new person, we were able to come to a middle ground and we found a budget that we could use to execute the project. And so, you know, so to kind of answer your question, um, when, you know, when national brands reached out to me, um, they're not, they reached out to me. They don't try to conform or package me. They're reaching out to me because they like the authentic work that I'm making. And they, when they reached out to me, I'm not doing some nothing different from what, from what I'm already making. And they're actually embracing, I, 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 I've been seeing in, in the past couple of years, brands are embracing artists and they're no longer necessarily steering away from controversial subjects. Even with Ciroc Vodka, which I did a big project with, um, I did a whole installation on Seawater Rise. And so, and they did a whole marketing campaign around water and things like that with, with their vodka brand. And so I've found this unique opportunity where I'm weaving my authentic voice, my creative license, and the brands are responding to that. And they're giving me complete agency to take on a, a, a element of the brand and kind of push it into a vocabulary where they want to introduce to their audience. Um, and so, yes, I don't think there's a contradiction. Um, if you look at art history, many artists were funded by the church and they had to paint a certain thing that the church wanted. And so the brand reached out to you, there's a certain product or there's a certain messaging that they want, but they're giving artists agency of how the messaging and how the story is told. God, the biggest brand of all. But, I mean, shame on Facebook for, like, not giving you the budget you wanted. That's embarrassing for I them. Mean, not necessarily, yeah. you know, because I think, you know, again, it all goes back, you know, because every corporation has a budget set aside. Um, but I think as artists, sometimes you have to know when to walk away. Yeah. And this is on that subject. This is something, um, true story. Um, when I graduated from college, I had an opportunity to create a installation in New York on Fashion Avenue for this luxury Italian brand. And there was something that added up about this commission. And so upon doing research, I realized that the brand wanted me to copy another artist's work. Um, and this and so and this would have been like an $80,000 commission. So imagine as a fresh college student, you have $80,000 commission hanging in front of you. And you're like, what do I do? And I made... The after talking to my um, department chair, a few mentors at the time um, when I was in college, I walked away from 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 that opportunity because I, I can either produce. Cause I, I knew I, I could do the project because I had the skill set to execute it. Yeah. So I, cause I could I could either execute this artist's work and copy somebody's work, and that would set the precedent of what I might be known for, yeah. or I could walk away and find into opportunities would come back. Yeah. And so, and so I've always been, again, like, you know, trying to find my authentic voice, you know, like money has its place, you know, but at the same time, you know, you should have a level of self-worth and there are certain things that as artists, you should not be willing to compromise. So much. And I think it's such a, a give and take too, like where, you know, it's like working within the climate um, sector for so many years, you know, like people 
who like opponents of the space like love to be like you guys fly to conferences and i'm not saying we should fly to conferences yeah. but there is this like there is a sense that like if you are doing anything actually one my first episode of this podcast my lovely guest talks a lot about like countering this this idea of perfectionism mm-hmm. within like social change um environmental ad- advocacy activist spaces like that like we have to counter this perfectionism that like that like you can't work for somebody who like can be potentially like seen as as evil yeah. in other areas because like we're not living like isolated in a cabin in the woods like we're we're a part of society as artists and there is this like constant interplay that has to happen like where we're constantly like asking like does this fit with my values can i make this fit with my values right. and just like just trying to to create a reality like where we can feed ourselves absolutely and again you know sometimes it's okay to walk away from a project yeah and when things like that happen you know i'm a strong believer that it comes back in other ways you know yeah um there's projects that i've said no to and I knew it was the right decision. Yeah. Or it would have compromised the work. It would have compromised, you know, the messaging or the or the final product. Yeah. And so by walking away, you know, you're saving yourself from other things as well. Yeah, so much. And we've been talking for so long. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to wrap this up <laughs> with with a few yeah. shorter questions. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Potentially. And so to switch gears, I want to ask you, looking around at all this beautiful plant life and human life and all, all kinds of life, just like interwoven in every kind of medium. So beautiful. I just like my eyes have just been like so happy this whole time. My question is, what is your favorite local flora? It's been changing a lot. You know, I think the more consistent one has been the hibiscus. You know, the hibiscus, I grew up around it back in Haiti. Um, and there's also a couple national flower for some of the for some of the countries in the Caribbean, including, I believe, Haiti as well. And favorite local fauna? Probably the, the chickens. You know, I think mm-hmm. the chickens is such a a unique thing you see in here in Miami. And so, you know, and, and also depending on the neighborhood, there's peacocks. Um, but growing up in Little Haiti, it's very common to see a chicken and running through the street with, with, with chicks or a rooster making noise five o'clock in the morning. In the city. <laughs> in the city. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, very cool. I need to go. I, wa- yeah. I want to go. I want to go through. Um, and now, okay, so next question. Three artists who have had some kind of meaningful impact on your life or career. So I think momentarily... You know, artist that I'm looking at would probably be De'Aaron Williams. Um, he's a Miami native who's based in Pennsylvania. Um, he's a painter. He does print making. Another young artist who's much younger than me, who I really love his momentum, is Cornelius. He's a recent grad of Cornell University. Um, he has a background in architecture, photography, painting. So he's like a triple threat um, in many different mediums. I'm really excited for his future. I see a lot of myself in him. He's like a younger version of, of me. Um, and then in terms of women, I would say probably Chris Friday. She's another local artist here in Miami um, who future, I think, is really, really bright. And I want a piece from her in my next collection. Lovely. Lovely. I'll include links to the work of those artists in the show notes. And... Last question. Um, I've been asking um, podcast guests to give a piece of homework. And you're an educator, so this is perfect. And in fact, you have this lovely quote that I found somewhere. I don't remember where. You said that art is not separate. It goes hand in hand with academics, um, which which I just think is so true. And we need art in all spaces, in my opinion. But if you could give the audience, whoever is listening, one piece of homework, something to do or think about or look out for in their surroundings, what would that be? I would say being in the education, in the museum space, um, I like inquiry, you know, so the way inquiry work is you make a visual observation of the piece or the work in front of you. And so instead of drawing to an immediate conclusion, you give the work and opportunity to um, you, you you analyze the work based on its physical aspect before you form a 
conclusion about that work. So kind of similar, I guess, and another way of phrasing is don't judge a book by its cover. So, you know, give people grace, you know, give them an opportunity. um, And maybe you might, by being patient, you might uncover something new. That's so beautiful. Well, it's such an honor to have spoken with you, had this lengthy conversation. I'm really looking forward to looking more deeply at the work that's surrounding me. And I can't wait to share um, links and photos of your work in the podcast accompaniment. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And that's all for this episode, the first in the two-part Miami Climate Series. Thank you for sharing this space and time with me, Morel. You will be able to find links to Morel's work in the show notes along with the link to my visual podcast accompaniment blog post where Morel will show three of his own pieces that are especially significant to his life or career or his perspectives in some kind of way. Please do get in touch if you have ideas for who else should be interviewed here in this forum on art, society, and our planet. With this being such a new podcast, I'd appreciate any support in the form of subscribing or rating or commenting, but of course, sharing if you can think of anyone who might be interested in this subject, which should be everyone, frankly. I hope you will listen to next week's podcast for part two of this series. Thank you to Samuel Cunningham for the podcast editing and to Cosmo Sheldrake for the podcast music, which comes from his song, Pelican's We. Until next week.